Hey, good morning, everybody. How you guys doing today? <laughs> I like that. Someone's like, good. All right, you've had your coffee. You're ready for this thing? All right. Well, hey, my name's Steve Ameter. If you don't know me, you've never seen before, I like to stay behind the scenes. So this is awesome. I'm up here. But I like to stay behind the scenes, and I help oversee our Give It Away uh, ministry. So if you don't know what that is, we have a mission statement here that we'll also learn uh, if you go to that boot camp. And it's know it, live it, and go give it away. And so it being the gospel. So what's important to us? The story of Jesus. And so hopefully we can make that make sense to you every week and with everything that we do. So that's what we're about, and hopefully you get excited about that too. And so what that really looks like for me as well is um, I help oversee our disciple-making efforts and our local and global missions. So if any of those buzzwords um, interest you, then I'd love to talk to you, and we can um, start figuring this stuff out together for our campus. So yeah, a little bit about me. Now we're all best friends, and we can do this together. So um, I'm weird, by the way. This is what you're going to get, and that's, that's okay. That's just okay. Um, but hey, we've been in this uh, series called The Everyday Revolution. Okay, we've been in this series for a little while now because there's a lot of aspects about it. And so what we've been talking about through this series is something called the household codes. Okay, the household codes. What is that? Well, it's, you see this both in secular and biblical studies and this ideal for or how to manage the household or how to operate with different types of relationships in the household, what the family life is all about. And so what we've done is we've gone through all types of different types of relationships. So we just recently finished up um, talking about generations. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about the, the wife and husband relationship. We've talked about all those things. And last week, if you were here with us, we started the conversation about work. And does God have something to say about work? Absolutely. And so the overarching question that we've been asking through the series is this, um, does God have an ideal for our everyday relationships? Is it important to God? Does he have something to say? Is there something in the scriptures that God wants us to know and how to operate, how to interact with each other? Does he have an ideal for our everyday relationships? Or do we just follow whatever culture does? Right? Whatever's good for us now and today, that we just do that? Or does God have something to say about these things? And as we'll see, and as we've talked about, he, for sure, he does. Okay, so I said last week we started talking about work, and so the way we started that conversation was in Colossians 3. Interestingly, it, it starts out by talking to slaves, okay? So we said, well, what's that all about? We said, does the Bible support slavery? No, the Bible doesn't support slavery. God happens to put provisions on that social construct, but what we related that to was, and what we said that that really defines as, um, it's, it's this common work situation, so some translations say slaves, some translations say bond servants. It was really this common work situation, much like enlisting in the military. So you, you sign up, you're in a contract, you're locked in, you, you get paid by them, they tell you what you can or cannot do, those types of things. And so for modern day context, that relates to work. And so we talked about workers and what we do for work, how we work, that matters. And what we said also Studies show that at the end of most of us, at the end of our life, we will have worked 90,000 hours, which equates to about 10 to 12 years, okay? It's a huge chunk of time. That's a huge chunk of time that we can waste or use um, appropriately, and God has something to say about that. And so one of the best ways to define it, because I think there's all kinds of definitions of work out there. In fact, 
We looked at a study again last week. And by the way, if you haven't caught up with any of this, um, these series at all, or if you weren't here last week, you can check it out at medinaeast.graceohio.org or download the free Grace Church app and view it all for free that way. But last week we said, um, we looked at maybe a cultural view, maybe the way Americans view work, and it's, it's typically about two different ways. So we either see ourselves as we live to work, right? So our identity is wrapped up in work. What we do for work is just who we are. It's part of our identity. It's almost an idolatrous thing, right? It's almost idolatry for us. It might be an identity for us. Or we saw that most Americans see work as something like we just work to live, okay? Meaning it's just a means to an end. Meaning I, the reason I work is because I just have to, right? I got to get by. I got I to gotta accumulate money so that I can buy things that's actually going to make me happy so that I can retire and do the thing that I wanted to do all along. We see it as a means to an end. But God seems to have a totally different category for our work. And so one of my favorite definitions, we defined it this way from a guy named Gary Brashears. He says this, the biblical doctrine of work is the gracious expression of creative energy for the Lord in the service of others to create shalom. What are we saying here? We're saying that in God's grace and empowerment to us, he, he, he gives us this creativity to use our, our physical and our mental energy to do something, to do work for the Lord, for others. This word shalom, that means peace. Or that means to build, like, build a well-ordered community. So our work for the Lord and for others should create peace, should create community. God has made this and it's good. And then I gave us two principles last week to work through too. And I said this, that your work is an act of worship, but it's not to be worshipped. So trying to shift our minds and our thinking away from this idea that work is just a necessary evil that we just have to do, right? Or something that we can or should worship. Instead, we should see our work as an act of worship to God, to service to him and to others. And then we said this, your work should create shalom, that word again, and not discord. So think about it. What you do for work, the work that you're doing, um, how you interact with those relationships, what you do in and for work, is that creating peace? Is it creating community for, for the Lord, for others, instead of creating discord? Which really just means disagreement, argument, or frustration, okay? So that's to catch you up a little bit on last week. And so for this week, we're going to keep going in that Colossians um, passage. So there's several passages in the household codes, and so we're going to finish up the ones on work, and those are this. We see that in Colossians 4 verse 1, the verse right after the verse we did last week, but then there's also Ephesians 6 verse 9, and so now we start talking about masters, okay? So last week, slaves, this week, masters. So what, what is a master, right? I know when I was first looking at this and studying this passage, I was like, oh gosh, what is that? Um, how is this going to relate to people? This is kind of, uh, if you're going that same train of thought, it might seem like it's just talking to the business owner, which, yeah, I know we have a lot of business owners in our church and people like that, but I think it's more broad than that. So who is a master? Well, let's put it this way. A master is anyone in a position of leadership or decision making. So anyone in a position of leadership or decision making. So yeah, this could be the business owner, those of you that are business owners here, those of you that are managers in your, your business, those of you that are parents, 
right? So I'm a parent, and I have, certain, uh, I have a certain position of leadership and decision-making over my three-year-old, thank God, right? Um, imagine if he made the decisions. It'd be, it'd be, it might be fun to do that for a day, but you get it, right? In a position of leadership and decision-making. Principals, teachers, coaches, church leaders. So I think it might be a little bit more relevant to a lot of us than maybe I even thought when I first studied this passage. So who, who does this relate to? Is this anybody in this room? I'm just going to relate to a lot of you guys. Okay, cool. Or maybe you aspire to this type of leadership, or certainly someone looks up to you in some way. So I think it'll be relevant for a lot of us. So let's get right into it then. Colossians 4 verse 1 and Ephesians 6 verse 9. Feel free to follow along on the screen. You're welcome to go there in your own Bibles, but we're going to get to a Bible passage in a little bit here. So here it is. Colossians 4 verse 1, Masters. Okay, anyone in a leadership position, decision-making position, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Ephesians 6, verse 9, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, let me point out three major things that I think Paul is pointing out for us in these passages, okay? So if you're taking notes, three major things on this, first one being this. He says, do the same thing, okay? He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. So this is why I love this passage. This is why I love today because he, basically he's telling me, right, as a teacher to say, hey, uh, just teach you guys the same exact thing that I taught last week. So we're just going to play my sermon from last week and then we're going to call it a day. You guys good with that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're not going to do that, but that would be funny. But he's saying, do the same thing. So the same exact thing that he said just last week that we learned about as workers, treat your slaves in the same way. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, Every Good Endeavor. It's a good read if you have never read it. He says this for the same verse there. Paul tells masters that they are slaves too, slaves of Christ. That is an extraordinary and radical word to speak into a rigidly hierarchical culture. He is saying, conduct yourselves among your servants as if you are, fellow, are a fellow slave. See, it's easy to overlook the little phrase in the same way. In what way? In the way that slaves were to treat their masters with the greatest respect for their needs. See how crazy this is? This is totally different from the culture at their time. For Paul to say, hey, those of you in leadership positions, those of you who have um, some kind of authority over people, treat them the same way. Treat them with the greatest respect for their needs. Okay, this isn't diminishing um, leadership at all. I think leadership is really important and God-approved and God-given. God puts leaders and people in authority over us for a reason and for a good reason. We're not diminishing that at all. But he's changing our mindset here and saying, man, instead, we are to see our leadership, right, our position of authority, our position of decision-making for others as a huge responsibility to God and to them Right? And to really respect the needs of others, not just my needs or our needs, right? To look at other people and their needs as well. Which makes sense why Paul would say the next part here in our next point. He says this after that, he says, Masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Okay? It's not rocket science here. Paul's just like, hey, um, do the same thing, treat others under your leadership with the same respect. 
and then do what is right and do what is fair. Other translations say do what is just and fair. Show justice, right? Do what's right. As an employer, someone in leadership, do what is right, do what is just, do what is fair to other people. And Paul says what it doesn't mean, what, what this doesn't mean is threatening. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Which again is crazy because Paul's going against the social construct of the day and saying, hey, masters, you have Obviously, you have, there's not too many provisions in this way at that time. He says, you have total authority over your bondservants or the people underneath you. He says, but don't threaten them, right? You, you would have the ability to make your bondservant or the people under you, you, could, you have the authority to make their life a living hell if you wanted to. Don't do that. Don't threaten them. Don't threaten them. Don't um, use your leadership to take advantage of people, to put fear into people to obey you as if that were good leadership, don't do that. Stop your threatening. Don't take advantage. And so masters have the opportunity to choose that or not, and Paul says not to do that. I was reminded of um, something interesting here. My, my wife, as I was asking her to help me with this teaching, I like to go over it with her so she can point out where I'm wrong and where I'm right and help me out with that, right? That's, that's what's good about that. She, I, I didn't have an example here, and she's like, you know, you're not, you're not the best example of this. And I was like, oh, thanks for the reminder. And she's like, you don't always do what's right and fair. You threaten sometimes. Okay, not, not in a really bad, which was, she was like, just, she's like, remember like how, how sometimes it's easy for me to do this in my parenting, right? So I have a three-year-old son. Three-year-olds are the most obedient, loving things in the world, <laughs> right? And you know I'm lying. <laughs> Um, it's interesting nowadays, like they say terrible twos, right? But three is like, man, this is crazy. Maybe it's just me, but anyways, I love my son, Emery. Uh, just, just a good example here. Just yesterday, Saturday morning, right? So I, I remember I'm sitting on the couch, um, going over my teaching, whatever, and, and Emery and Isaiah is my other kid. They're, they're just playing and it's, it's time to get ready for them to go to, to nap, okay? And then we're, I'm like, hey, Emery, it's, it's time for nap. And he's like, no, just like straight up. I'm like, you know, I, I just see myself getting angry. I'm like, dude, cause I just don't like being told no by a three-year-old, I guess. That's just my problem. But um, he, he yells no, and I'm like, Emery, like, I'm trying to be calm. I'm like, Emery, it's, it's time to take a nap, buddy. You need to take a nap. You're tired. No, I'm not taking a nap. I'm like, okay. And then he just, like, kicks over or throws all of his markers. And I get really mad. And I'm like, dude, pick up your markers. Your brother's going to choke and die on those, right? And he doesn't care. He's just like, no, whatever. I'm not going to listen to you, dad. And so, of course, I'm like, you better, you better obey me. So, like, I get off the couch, like, angry, and I go up to him, like, dude, pick up the markers now, right? And then I see his little face threatened, and I'm just like, gosh, man, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry, buddy. I, I don't want to be that guy who, like, yells and uses threat tactics at my son, right? I don't want him to see, him that way, to see me that way in my leadership to him, right? It's not good. Do what's right. Do what is fair, that's not to, to diminish discipline at all, right? Obviously, we have to discipline our, our kids or um, do things like that for people that are underneath. But are we threatened? Are we using threat tactics? Are we trying to do those types of things instead of doing what is right, what is harder to do, what maybe doesn't come naturally for us to do? Some of us, we've been that type of leader, right? Some of us, we've been underneath that type of leader as well. 
I have another example. Um, I was a, a night manager at a grocery store, a small grocery store a while ago, and we had some really awesome owners in the beginning. And so I'd worked there for many years, and then at one point, the owners, they decided to, sol- to sell the business, and then this other guy who, who was buying it came in, and there was a transition period, and so him and the other owners were, were working together at one point. And it seemed like a nice guy. It seemed cool, right? And then the other owners, they finally left, and it was just him. And then he just totally changed, totally different. He started, started using threat tactics to, to like beer and wine vendors, to grocery vendors, to try to get his way, to try to get more out of them than they would give to him. And he would do this for other employees, for me, and he would pick favorites, right? And he would eventually, I think this is why he went out of business, but, and it's definitely why I quit, my, my mom worked there as well, and he started treating my mom like crap. I'm like, dude, you can treat me badly, but you don't treat my mom like that, right? And so you, just, you don't do that to your mom. And so um, not to go into too much detail, but he, he eventually made her do more work than she should have done, not paying her at all. There were paychecks that she missed and things like that. And he, he would always pull the tactic of like, hey, if you don't do this, you're going to get fired. Ha, ha, ha. It's like it's funny the first time, but not the hundredth time, right? So we've all had this type of leader. We've maybe we've been that type of leader. We've had... Um, been underneath that type of leadership before. Some of us, we might think, well, what about Steve Jobs, right? I'm an Apple guy, so I got to bring up Apple at some point, but Steve Jobs, you, you think about him and the biographies of him and um, how he used like threat tactics and, and fear to, to get his way and to get people to do the right work at Apple, right? And Apple seems to be doing well. Why don't we follow that example? Well, you're not Steve Jobs and you didn't invent the iPod, so uh, let's just stick with what the Bible has to say. I think it's better do what's right, do what's fair. That's what he says instead. Don't use fear as a motivation for work for others. So how you operate your business, how you treat your employees, how you structure your leadership or make your decisions, that is important to God and it matters to him how we do this. And we think the way that Jesus modeled it, right? If anybody had authority over anybody, it would be Jesus, the Bible tells us. Jesus has all authority. And how did he use his authority? He used it to serve us, not to be served, right? Now, that's a great example. That's a great example of using your leadership, your authority in that way to serve people instead of to be served, to try to get something out of others. So last week, after I was um, teaching, a lot of you um, really encouraged me, so thank you. And um, some of you gave me some really cool examples about how you're doing this in your leadership position or your business. And one guy, he said, he said yeah, I, um, he, he has like, he's over about 100 employees or something like that. And he said recently, he's just been like really, um, I guess, burdened to, to hire somebody to help um, figure out for, their, for his workers where their fit is, like what their personality is like. And so much like our connection pathway, right? There's another plug, you should sign up for boot camp. Much like our connection pathway, when you go through that at the end, we look at your, your personality test and your spiritual gifts and things like that because we love you and we wanna see how God has designed you, how he's made you, what your fit is in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God and here serving other people. And so he did the same thing at his business at a cost to him, right? He didn't have to use those resources, that money, to hire this person to do that, but he did it to serve his people. And I don't even know if he knows if it's gonna work or not because obviously it has a Christian bent to it, so there's some legal things there that he can't just make it mandatory for everybody. 
what he's doing. I think that's a great example of how he or how we could do that kind of stuff in a way in our leadership model. So ultimately, God wants us either in authority or under authority to act like, to think like Jesus. Not just selfish, not just whatever benefits me, right? Okay, so do what is right, do what is fair, don't threaten. And then very simply says, okay, why do we do this? Because Jesus is our master. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right, what is fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven, because you know that you're not the king of the universe, because you know that your leadership is not the best. You know that you have a master in heaven as well, that you are also under authority too. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Right? Our leadership, it's not going to be perfect. I can say that for myself, right? Um, my, my leadership's not perfect in the, in the church, at home. It's not always perfect. And so when it is going well, right, what can we do? We can easily say, I can easily say, man, I'm, I'm really doing good this week. I'm really leading my family this week. I'm really helping lead the church this week. How cool am I, right? But instead, how, can we shift that and say, God, thank you that you are the example, that you are the better master. How cool is it, how cool is it that you allow me to partake in that? Or when I do fail as a leader um, or as an overseer in my decision-making, how are we looking to God and saying, God, show me, teach me how you are the better master so I can confess that, so I can change that and do better for you? He also adds this, no favoritism, right? He says there is no favoritism with him. Because I know what happens when um, you've been in leadership for long enough. It's easy to think that you're king of the world, <laughs> right? To think you're the best thing to happen to anybody, and God's like, man, there's no favoritism. Just because you're in that position, maybe God's put you in that position, it doesn't mean that he thinks better of you than the lowly servants beneath you, right? He's like, no, there's no favoritism in him here. He loves you the same as he loves anyone else in that regard. So what happens? We, when we get a position of power, it's easy to get to our head and to realize that everyone has a master, and hopefully that master is Jesus, and they serve him first above anything else. I think a good way to sum up these two passages is by this uh, quote from a commentary that I used, and it says this, Paul presumes that Christian belief will cohere with Christian behavior, knowing what is right should result in doing what is right. See how simple that is? At least to say out loud, right? How do, you, how do you work in your leadership in this way? How, how do you see Jesus as your master? Well, you've got to have a relationship with him. You've got to be under the authority of his word. So those beliefs, that relationship, knowing what is right, how do we find that out here, right? Knowing what's right should hopefully lead to doing what is right. It's not follow your heart, do what your heart says. It's what does God have to say about that? What does God have to say about that relationship, about that decision, those types of things? So let's change gears here a bit, okay? Um, I'm going to drink a water, and you might want some coffee, because we're going to go through an entire book of the Bible today, okay? When's the last time you, in one sitting, went through an entire book of the Bible? I know some of you are going to walk out and leave, but hey, this is going to be good, okay? I promise. We're going to go through Philemon, all right? 
and uh, it's in page 837 in the Bibles underneath you. And we're going to go old school. I'm not going to put this on the screen, okay? So if you've got a Bible, get it out. Let's read it. It's literally only 20, uh, 25 verses, so it's not going to take too long. This is going to be sweet, all right? Says the Bible nerd. All right, some context real quick. Philemon, if you've never read it, it's a short, quick, powerful book. Easy to read and, and, and lose sight of that, but it's a powerful book. Basically, just to sum it up, there was a rich dude named Philemon who owned his own business, accepted Christ, and then he started a home church at his church, and he had, he, had, he had bond servants. He had people working underneath him, and then something happened. Something happened, and Paul addresses that thing that happened. So verse 1, let's check this out. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Here's where it starts to get interesting. If you're tuning in here, it's funny too. Verse 8 says this, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but to be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a, while, for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done anything, any wrong, done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That was awesome. I enjoyed it. So what's going on here? All right, let me just further illustrate this, okay? Imagine this. Imagine that each one of you here, you're, you're a business owner, okay? You recently started a business. Things are going great, okay? You're a business owner. 
and then you start to, to have to hire people, okay? So you, you get a, a resume from this dude named Onesimus, and you're like, oh, I'm going to hire this guy. Actually, if you didn't know this, Onesimus actually means useful. So you get this dude's resume. He's like, oh, this, this guy sounds useful. I'm going to hire him. So you hire this guy, and um, he starts working for you, and he's living up to his name, and he's doing really good. And then all of a sudden, kind of changes. He gets a little lousy in his work. Um, doesn't, doesn't work as well as he did before. And then we don't really know, but let's just know from the scripture, but let's just say this. Let's say he steals a ton of money from you and your business, and he uses that money to get cruised to Rome, okay? How would you feel about that? Not so sweet. You'd probably want to exercise your authority to the biggest way you can, right? And so this guy steals money from you, takes a cruise to Rome. You don't see him for a while after that, okay? Some time goes by. Imagine this, you're, you're at your home church or you're leading a life group, you're at a life group, you're still doing this business, and then Pastor Tony comes to your, your home, to your life group, and he says, hey, dude, you remember that guy, Onesimus, that you hired um, back then? You know, he wasn't really useful, but, um, you know, he, he accepted, I met him, he accepted Christ. How awesome is that, right? You're probably like, so I don't, I don't care, let me find this guy, right? I want to do something else to him. And then he's like, man, yeah, actually, Pastor Tony's like, yeah, this guy accepted Christ. He's so cool. Like, um, he's like living up to his name now. He's really useful. In fact, I'd really love to hire him on at Grace Church, but I think he's going to be way more beneficial for you. So I'm just going to tell you, you should, you should hire him back. In fact, I'm going to bring him over now so you can just hire him again, and, and everything's going to be cool, <laughs> right? Uh, wait a minute. What's going on here, right? And then... Imagine this pastor telling he's like, yeah, if he owes you anything, if he did any wrong to you, like, just let me know. I'll pay it back. I'll write the check. Whatever it takes, I'll do that. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to come over this weekend, so prepare a room for me just so I can make sure you're doing what I asked you to do. Okay, that's basically what Paul just said to this guy. It's crazy. It's absurd. And what's beautiful about this is that's what the gospel is. It's crazy. It's absurd. It's insane. It's a trans formation of people. It's a reconciliation of people. That's what's going on here. Reconciling broken relationships and showing another way for us to go about our authority, our leadership, our work relationships, all those types of things. Showing us another way. Let me reveal two things that I'm getting out of this here. Number one, it's this. Our business is God's business. Okay, pun intended. Not that you own a business necessarily, but if you do, cool. But our business is God's business. What do I mean by this? What gives Paul the right to get up into Philemon's business, literally? What gives him that right? What gives Pastor Tony the right to tell you to hire this guy back that stole money from you and to clear that charge? Don't worry about it. It's, a, it's, it's God. It's God and his word. This is that authority. God wants to be a part of our lives in a real way. That's what gives him that right. See, it's troubling when this happens, and, I, and I've heard this happen. I've seen this happen so many times. It's troubling when we hear people say, like, yeah, I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. I read the Bible sometimes, you know. But I don't follow him in that aspect of my life, right? I love Jesus. I follow him, but not in my work. Leave that out. It's totally different. I, I, I'm totally different there, right? I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. Not in my family. Not in my school. I don't take it there. Totally detached. I'll come to church once a week. I'll go to life group. Hey, I'll even go to life group. It's twice a week. I'll, I'll throw that in. But I won't, I won't do that at my work. God wants to partner with us in these things. He wants to be part of those things. Would you allow him to be? 
See, what happens is when, when we allow for that happening, right, when we allow for our, our everyday life to be detached from God in these ways, then hiring Onesimus, <laughs> that's a total bad move. That's not a good business move at all. You would not think about doing that. The book of Philemon, that will not sell in the, in the business world. But instead, if you have God involved in your life, and that's the best move that you can do to show the gospel to the most people that you can, to actually be like Christ in those moments, in your authority, in your exercising of leadership. He's concerned, concerned with shaping your culture, uh, sh- shaping your character through your work, through how you interact with others in those ways. He's concerned with those things. Number two is this. Our leadership will then either proclaim or prohibit the gospel. Right? We have that. We can, we can either proclaim in our leadership or prohibit the gospel in our relationships. Has someone wronged you before? And you want to, more than anything, you don't want to tell them about Jesus, right? Man, it's like what Paul is saying to Philemon. He says, hey, Philemon, how you respond has the power to show the gospel or not. So I don't really know what happens at the end of this story, right? I can just imagine if, if Philemon took this route of proclaiming the gospel, then he would accept him back as a brother, no longer as a slave. He would count that debt a loss because of the gospel transforming his life and him doing that for others. Now, it might sound crazy, right? Obviously, there are some discernments there, right? But Philemon, for him to do that, to accept him back as a proclamation of the gospel. Or, I mean, it could be totally justified. He could look at that guy and be like, no way, man. You stole from me. You pay me that back. Sounds actually like another parable that Jesus used in the Bible, and it didn't go well. <laughs> so our, our leadership can either proclaim or prohibit the gospel. So this is the only letter that um, Paul writes that really he's not just like in your face with the gospel. Usually he's like, it's about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, Rah, right? Up in your face. This is the only one where he doesn't necessarily do that. Instead, he illustrates it, the gospel, he illustrates that with his life. He's like, this is what a transformation looks like, that we would forgive this person, right? That we would relinquish our pride and our authority of leadership in such a way to where we can show the gospel for real. N.T. Wright says something about this very passage. I love this. He says, Paul is not asking for a paternalistic willingness to let bygones be bygones, nor is he offering good advice to Philemon on how to maintain a dignified detachment untroubled by passion or anger. Now, he seeks the specifically Christian virtue of loving forgiveness, which will demand humility from both parties. It's both parties. Onesimus to seek forgiveness and Philemon to grant it. Onesimus must abandon fear and Philemon must abandon pride. And the thing which will induce both parties to do this is a theological fact, namely the fellowship. If you want to get real nerdy, write that down, the koinonia, which belongs to the people of Christ. What's he saying? There's nothing else besides the gospel that could allow for this extreme amount of forgiveness and this extreme amount of relinquishment of pride. And it takes both people to do that. It's not one way or the other. We're not just saying that you just be a passive leader or a passive person allowing whatever to happen just because God's good and he's going to forgive people. Right? It takes both parties here. But you see how extreme that is in comparison to maybe what we would normally think or normally want to do. But he says, no, it's good. It's gospel-centered advice 
It's something that creates shalom or peace and community for us to act this way, the very way that Jesus has acted to us and for us. So will we conduct ourselves in our leadership structure in such a way that's proclaiming the gospel or prohibiting it? So I'll invite the, the band up now, and I'll, I'll kind of close off in this way. Um, so like I said a little bit ago, Philemon, that, that book probably won't sell in like the leadership world, right? And so I, know I'm, I often am a little harsh and, and brash and cynical about most things, but um, leadership books and things like that, and, and I own them, and they're good. But I think Philemon, this book, and, and the book that we have here, this should be our authority, right? God has an ideal for our everyday relationships. Who's going to be the master of that? Ourselves, other things, the culture, or is it going to be God and his word? Are we going to come under him and his authority? Are we going to allow that to happen? Because I know what happens when we don't do that. We end up thinking that we are the masters of our own lives, of our own world, right? Uh, that's kind of my story. I was a punk kid at the age of 21, still am a punk kid, but at 21, even more so, I, um, I thought that I was just the, the best thing that ever happened to anybody else. <laughs> I was in management positions. I was in um, decision-making positions, and I thought that I was the master of my own world, yet I saw my, my life falling apart. I didn't have control. I found out that I didn't have control of most things in my life. And it really stuck to me one time when I um, listened to a pastor talk about something in Matthew, and he was talking about this idea of, like, um, do you have control of whether, when you die or not? And that's, like, all he said. And I was like, huh, that's a good point. I don't have that control, right? It's so simple. But we do that. We think we have control of most things in our life, and we don't. So maybe for some of us today, maybe we need to relinquish that control that we think we have to a good and a better master, Jesus. Who, who came to serve you, not to be served. I want to follow that guy. So maybe that's some of us today. Maybe we're in that position. But maybe for others of us, I have, I have another challenge. And you know, I'll, I'll bring back the challenge that I gave last week because I hope that we can continue to keep this in our mindset as we continue working. A lot of us work. So how will the love of Jesus transform us and how we work? How are we seeing work as an act of worship, not to be worshipped or to be hated? How are we doing something about that in our work? How will the love of Jesus transform our work so that others see Jesus? How are we proclaiming instead of prohibiting the gospel for others in our work? Because we see it as something totally different, something that God wants to be a part of. So for this week, how will the love of Jesus transform us and how we lead? Okay, you already said a lot of us here are in some type of leadership position, some type of overseeing or decision-making position. How will the love of Jesus transform us in how we lead? Here's a good way to, to figure that out. Um, think of the people that are underneath you, like either in your work, your manager, or, or maybe even your kids, whoever. Ask them to evaluate you. Say, hey, scale of one to ten, am I doing what is right and what is fair? Am I threatening? It might be revealing to us. <laughs> We might not want to do that. How is the love of Jesus transforming that? And how is the love of Jesus transforming our leadership so that others see Jesus? Is that even a thought in our mind that how we lead others, that God is totally wanting to be involved in that, not detached from that? And we can either proclaim the gospel or shut that off for somebody else. I guess we should pray about these things. Jesus, you're good. And God, um, 
I, I know you're good because uh, the things that you've done in my life, you, you have revealed to me areas where um, I, I'm not in control of my life and that you are a, a good and a better master. You are God. Lord, I pray that, that your word, above anything else that I'm saying, that your word, God, would, would, would reveal to us and show to us how to lead other people the way that you have used your authority here on earth, God, to serve but not to be served. God, how can we do that? How can we lead by example in that way, showing other people you? How can we do that in our parenting, God, in our work environment, whatever that might be? Lord, show us. We need you. So, Lord, I pray that for anybody who, who is not, who, who still is a master of their own world, that they would see a better king, that they would see you, God. And Lord, I pray that throughout the week, as, as tomorrow hits, as we start working again, that we would be transformed by your word and, and see it differently as an act of worship to you and service to others. How can we lead by example? So God, you're, you're good. Your word's good. Help us to keep remembering these things and to do them often. And I pray that in your name, Jesus.